Now, what if, what if, what if the point of the Bible is not to make our lives better, but to make us, our, our faith stronger? <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but, uh, or you've ever thought about the fact that this is true, but. There's a lot of folks who spend a lot of time in church who never ask the most obvious questions and never, therefore never answer those questions. Like, what is the point of the Bible anyway? What is the, what is the, what's the Bible trying to uh, teach us to do? And most people... Uh, just sort of without asking the question or answering it, just behave, just go to church and think that the, the point of the Bible is to make your life better. That's really not the point of the Bible at all. And even more instructive, in particular to tonight, when it comes to spiritual warfare, most people think the Bible is a manual for how to stop Satan from harassing them. That's what most people think. And, you know, on any given Sunday in nearly any church in America, somebody could stand up and preach a sermon about how the Bible is this manual to keep Satan from harassing us, and everybody would just go along with it. they just go along with it because that's the general consensus. But here's the thing. When you actually read the Bible, what do you find? Satan harassing everyone in the Bible. Is that not what you find? So clearly that's not the case. I mean, it's so obvious. It's not even it's not even remotely the case when instead God gives us the Bible to defeat him when he does. That's what the Bible does. The Bible teaches you how to defeat Satan when he harasses you. Not how to keep him from harassing you because guess what? The only thing that's going to keep him from harassing you is God, and clearly God's not going to do that because everyone in the Bible is getting harassed by Satan. Right? I mean, none of the promises, think of, think, think of, you could eliminate the vast majority of all the promises in the Bible uh, if you could stop Satan from harassing you because they wouldn't make any sense. If Satan wasn't harassing you, the promise wouldn't make any sense. But it's just crazy. Like when you really stop and think for a second, clearly you're like. So when you, when you look at the Psalms, you know, these Psalms that we've been looking at, and you know, I can't just, you know, it's just my uh, sickness that I have. I can't just, uh, I can't just take a Psalm and meditate on it and then teach it to you, oh no, it doesn't work like that for me. I have to dive off into the most insane, you know, 
mind-bending. Just one little simple conversation last Wednesday night about a sermon that I preached 10 or 15 years ago got me thinking. So then I look up this psalm, and it was I knew then, I'm like, it's over. And this thing has been rolling around in my head for the last seven days, like 24-7. You know, this is a psalm. Psalm 88, nobody preaches on Psalm 88. Nobody even wants to read Psalm 88. Nobody wants to think about Psalm 88. We all just want to pretend it's not even in the Bible. But, you know, I get obsessed with things like that. So, Anyway, the greatest struggle of American Christianity is what to do with inevitable suffering. That's the greatest struggle. What do we do with that? How do we manage, navigate that? How do we, we live in a world where a culture where we can mitigate, navigate, you know, and, and, you know, set up precautions and do this and do that so that all these, you know, we have safety nets all the way around us. And the Bible just laughs at all that. But we wish, you know, we want so bad. We want so desperately to believe that if we do a good job at Christianity, that we can avoid suffering. We wished that that were true. So bad. So much so that a lot of people just would just feel better if they're just to be lied to. Just lie to me and make me feel better. They love it. And they hate me because I won't lie to them. That's just the truth. So what happens, though, is inevitably when things go horribly wrong, or when they, because they're going to, then we have no idea what to do. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. And, you know, you, you've probably all known people who, you know, on the surface look like, you know, wow, man, these are great people, you know, and they go to church and they seem to live moral lives and this and this and this. And so on the outside, everything looks great. But you can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. You don't really know anything about anybody spiritually until they suffer. When somebody suffers, that's when you find out the truth. That's when you find out what they're really made of. That's when you find out what's really the real deal. That's, that's the way it goes. That's when you're going to get the, the truth of the matter. You're going to see clearly what's going on. Things get hard. Things get bad. And, you know, they're going the other direction. And suddenly, you know, the worse life gets, the less they come to church, the less they draw near to God. See, they really weren't spiritual at all. It was all just an act. But in suffering, you're going to see the truth. So it's rare, unfortunately, um, today, you know, just little pockets of places where uh, people are serious about studying God's Word, where you're going to find people who are able to have the spiritual discipline necessary to flourish in their suffering, and to, or to maintain in their suffering, even. Psalm 88 is often referred to as 
I mean, this is enticing. Like you've never seen it on a T-shirt, never seen it on a picture on anybody's wall. Never, nobody's got it on a tattoo. Nobody, you've never heard, no one's ever memorized it, quotes it, knows it. Zero, nada, refers to it, talks about it, anything. I mean, because it's referred to as the dark night of the soul. You know, it sounds like a Star Wars episode or something. I mean, but the reason that that phrase is always attached to it is uh, because in the Middle Ages, all the, the Christian literature that we have access to from the Middle Ages, uh, it was one of the most popular things for uh, Christians to write about. Theologians would write about uh, the suffering and the struggling, because if you know anything about history, you know there was a very, very dark time, and there was a lot of great persecution. And so they were very astute on things like this. Um, but in our culture, we don't, you know, I mean, we're the complete opposite. We just would rather act like, you know, it doesn't even exist, and we just pretend like everything's going to be fine and, you know, go on. But Needless to say, uh, this psalm is unique to anything else in the Bible because for several reasons. Number one, um, when you read it, you get to the end and go, well, that's pretty much the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, what we want is to like, go on this journey where we start up here, then we go down to the pit of hell, but then suddenly we end up on a mountaintop and we have a, you know, and everything's nice and wonderful and, you know, it's like Snow White story. Leaves you unresolved. Psalm 39 is the only other place in the Bible that's even remotely like it. But it's not nearly as intense. And see, this is the problem that, that, uh, that I have with most Christian things in our culture. You know, I don't get jazzed up about, or I wouldn't say never. Every once in a while I do, but I'm grateful that, you know, we have Christian movies now. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that people can go to, you know, I can go to the movie and I know that I'm not going to be, you know, bombarded with all kinds of immorality or whatever the case may be. But although I don't have to hear things or see things that I don't want to hear or see, I just trade it out for other things I don't want to hear or see. Because most Christian movies are garbage. Because they all, it always ends with everything being fixed. And that's not true. That's not life. That's not the Bible. That's wrong. And so I already know that, you know, they're just trying to make me think everything's going to be bad. But in the end, everybody's going to be happy and the marriage is going to be fixed and everybody's going to love and all the people are going to come to church and everybody's going to get saved. And, you know, and every once in a while, somebody makes a movie that's actually real and it ends and everything's not fixed. And I'm like, well, praise God. That's true. And you know the problem is? Is that we think 
This is what the problem, and that we think that if a lost person sees a movie, but it doesn't end resolved, that it's not going to be evangelistic, which basically is just lying to people. That's not. I would never tell somebody that I'm talking to about the Lord that, listen, you need to get saved and God will fix all your problems. That is a lie. I would never tell anybody that. But almost every Christian movie that's come out tells that lie. It's a lie. And so this is a great example of uh, the Bible's just pure unadulterated honesty. And, uh, you know, there may be a perfectly good moral to every story or reason or circumstance or situation from God's perspective. I believe that 100%. Uh, I believe that all of life has a divine purpose. I believe that 100%. 100%. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to see it or that we're, or that it's going to become clear to me or you or anybody else in this lifetime. It just doesn't. So we shouldn't act like it does because that's not the way it works. Wow. Sometimes other things become clear. And then I sound like I'm speaking from above. Hmm. Psalm 88. <laughs> See how that happened? Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, a adrift among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves you have put my acquaintances far from me you have made me an abomination to them I am shut up and I cannot get out my eyes my eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hand to you. Will you work wonders from, from the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness from the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes before you, Lord. Why do you cast out my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness well joy 
I mean, that sounds like a Disney story if I ever heard one. All right, so let's talk about the truth of life and the truth of what this teaches us. First thing, number one, darkness can last. It can last. I think a lot of people, especially people in Christ, think, well, it might be dark, but don't worry. You know, and it's a good time to quote a verse like, but joy comes in the morning. Well, it might come in the morning, but it might not. It might not come for 150 mornings or 10,000 mornings or ever. At least the, the joy that you're looking for. It may not. See, when a prayer, because that's what this is, when, when it ends in darkness, it teaches us that sometimes after doing everything right, darkness continues. I mean, tonight is going to be like a hundred lies that we are tempted and often believe. That's what it's going to be like. And it's just going to be one after another, after another, after another. So every time we're in darkness, we think God's trying to teach me a lesson. So if I would just do everything right, the darkness would stop. Hmm. The problem with that is there's bits of truth in it, but, but we've twisted it around and made it something that the Bible doesn't teach. Yeah, there's something for you to learn in it, of course. But to think that somehow you're going to do everything right and it's just going to go away, well, that's not exactly how that works at all. There's no guarantee that's going to be the case. Darkness comes in two forms, inner and outer. It comes in external and internal. And you can see that in this psalm, I mean, really in every single verse, but I'll just point out a couple to you. See, he says in verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, yet... In his heart, he does not sense the presence of God. So that's internal. Then in verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. So see, all of the people closest to him are far from him. So he feels this internal loneliness, but it's caused by an external circumstance. Or verse 15, I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Or verse 16 says, your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. So there's all sorts of internal, external, there, that, and this combination going back and forth of what's going on. And so whatever darkness you've been in before or darkness you're in right now uh, or experiences you have with darkness, you know this to be true, that it's a combination of internal and external things, right? That oftentimes the normal, not always, but oftentimes the most common would be Exter it starts externally and ends up internally. That's normally how, but not necessarily always. But they're always working together to create and, and lure us and get us stuck in darkness. See, if a person faces outer darkness, so circumstantial darkness, bad things happen, whatever the case may be, but inside they sense God's presence and strength, well, they're going to be able to handle it. But when the outer darkness gangs up with the inner darkness and becomes inner darkness, now you got a problem. That's when, because as soon as you feel like God's absence, absent in your life, that's when you really are in despair. And you can tell by everything the psalmist is saying in Psalm 88 that clearly his overwhelming sense is, is that God's absent from him. 
I mean, almost every verse is some way that God has forsaken him or not with him. That's what he's saying. So, you know, uh, he's done everything he knows to do. The psalmist has. You can, I mean, he's, tell, he's listing out thing after thing after thing that he's done. But it hasn't changed anything. He's still in darkness. Well, you know, what about, you know, uh, well, what it tells us is what we don't want to hear. We, we don't want to hear that when darkness sets in, well, what is it comprised of? Well, we, it, two things for sure always. At least two things are true. Number one, you think you're the, you're the only one there. See, whenever you're in darkness, there, there's certain things that the, the, the Lord of the darkness always makes sure that you hear, and they're the most effective things to get into your head. And no, number one is that you're the only one there. Nobody else, oh, there's other people struggling, but nobody's struggling like you. He wants to isolate and alienate you and make you feel as exclusive as he possibly can in that situation. The second lie that's always prevalent is that you're, it's never going to change. Soon as he gets you to believe you're the only one, then he pounces on number two and starts getting you to think, oh, this is never going to change. It's never going to go away. You're the only one. And now you're stuck here. And so we read a psalm like Psalm 88, and we see this, this, uh, you know, this man pouring his heart out, this man of God pouring his heart out, prays, and he prays, and he prays. And yet he finds himself in this position of both external and internal darkness, and nothing seems to be changing. So we have to hear what we don't want to hear, which is, that you can do everything right and remain in a place of darkness, and it can last a long time. Now, let's be honest. If I wrote a book and that was the title, it would sell like 13 copies. And it would be as true as anything you could ever write. Nobody's buying it. Not because they don't believe it, even people that believe it won't buy it because they don't want to read it. They don't want to know it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to. See, like everybody, it's not like anybody doesn't. We all know everybody in here. We all are 100% convinced that we're going to die. But we don't want to think about it when we don't want to talk about it. We're so wacky that we think, like I freak you out because I like to talk about it. And I like watching you get all squirmy. Because you start thinking like, what if he dies after he says that? Because like you're so weird, you think that by me saying something, it could bring about my death. Which is like, what, what happened? I mean, we suddenly just morphed into a horoscope crowd here or something. Like, what? That's just absurd. God knows the number of my days. I can say anything I want to say and it ain't never going to change. The number is the number. He's the one that determines it. And if it just happens to happen after I say something, it doesn't have anything to do with me saying something. Don't be weird. Come on. Let's embrace the truth. I mean, okay, so, well, what about, 
He's never going to leave us or forsake us. Or Romans 8, 28. You know, he's going to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I mean, what about that? So how does that work? I can do everything right and yet still suffer. Well, I don't know. What it, let, let's just let's take the very first book of the Bible. Why don't you just go home and read the very first book of the Bible and you, you I want you to tell me, send me an email and, and tell me what Joseph did wrong. Everything went wrong in his life. He was utterly faithful. Year after year after year. Now, the reason why we're okay with Joseph is because we get to the, the only thing we know about Joseph is the only verse we ever quote that has to do with Joseph is the end. And so we all love to say, oh, well, but what? What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Because that's at the end, everything's good. And we have a white picket fence and a dog named Spot. And we're all happy. But we forget all the years. What about all the years he was in prison? Faithful. Right? So what about all these promises? Well, yeah, God promises to work all things out for good. 100%. And you and I might live our whole entire life and never know what that good purpose is. And it'll be 100% true. See, the truth of God's promise has nothing to do with you understanding it or God explaining it to you. You ever, ever know that? See, here's the thing. I can prove it to you in five seconds. It's true. It's true that the sun's going to rise in the morning, but you don't understand deadly squat about how that's going to happen. You think you do, but you don't have a clue. See, we're going to be warmed by the sun tomorrow, probably a little more than we'd like to. But you don't understand. That's true, but you don't understand how that happens. I mean, the world is filled with a billion things that are 100% true that you don't understand. But somehow, wacky Christians believe we get all tangled up and we think if we don't understand it, well, then, you see, we think everything that's true, we got to understand for it to be true. Like if it, like the value of God's promise is in us understanding it. That is not the value of the promise. The value of the promise is in who makes the promise. That's it. So, uh, let me give you some examples. I didn't have room to put all this on your handout, but uh, well, did I put Luke eighteen seventeen eighteen seven on your handout? Now, at the end of the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, you know, she keeps going and going and going and going, and the judge doesn't care about justice, doesn't want to hear all she has to say or anything. And then Jesus says at the end of that parable, he goes, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Yes. Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-huh. I'm going to avenge it. I'm going to take care of it. But are you going to understand? See, the widow doesn't really understand what's going on. And even in the parable, Jesus tells, the judge says, I don't even care nothing about justice. I just don't want you bugging me. See, there's a lot of things in that parable that are just kind of like, wait a minute, what all's going on? How is this working? But Jesus is going, that's not the point. The point is, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. So see, God promises us many things but he's not obligated to explain anything to us. The value is in the promise and who makes the promise. That's it. That's, 
See, you know what? You know what the value of the sun is? Is that we're not going to freeze to death tomorrow. See, we, we know that. It's not going to feel real valuable when you're out mowing the grass and you feel like you're going to melt. But, but see, I don't know how that works. But the value of it is, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But the value of it is, is that I know the promise is true. And so therefore, it just is. See, some of us, we're all going to suffer. And it's going to be all sorts of different varying ways. And the thing about it is, is I, 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 what would be true is for me to say, well, we're all going to suffer in, to different degrees. That is true, but that's not how you're going to experience it or feel it because here's the thing. Your suffering always feels worse to you than, than other things because it's you, right? I mean, you ever, you ever had somebody tell you how sick they were? Oh, I was so sick and oh, my stomach hurt so bad. And you're like, yeah, sounds horrible until you're sick. And then it is horrible, see? In other words, you could tell me about how sick you feel all the time, as much as you, you know what I'm saying? But, but when I'm sick, I'm like, whoo. And then here's the thing. The degree for me to empathize with your sickness is based on how sick I've ever felt. So if you say, oh, let me tell you what happened to me. Well, if I've ever had that, I'm like, oh, that's so bad. Because I've had that, right? But if you're saying, Oh, these labor pains were just amazing. I'm like, whatever. I mean, do I know it hurts? Well, yeah, based on all the carrying on, but uh, that's all I really know about it. Right? I'm, I'm just being honest. So this is extremely valuable information. Because you're going to suffer. And when you do, what are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? What are you going to do when you go into dark, a dark place and you can't get out? Man, if you believe wrong things, you are going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. And this psalm can give us instruction. It can teach you what to do when you get into a dark place and you can't get out. And it goes on and on and on and on. See, we simply don't know what to do with verses like Philippians 1.29. See, the, the Bible says, Paul says, For you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We don't even know what to do with that. That doesn't even make any sense to American Christians. But to the Bible, see, Paul's, Paul's saying, wow. Like if Paul met you and you were just in great persecution because of, and you were faithful to Jesus and everything in your life was going wrong, he would be like, wow, that's amazing. And you'd want to slap him. But he'd be amazed by that. He sees that completely different than we see that. We try to smooth it over. We try to glaze it over. We try to pretend like, you know, we say dumb things, you know, like, oh, you know, oh, oh, there's going to be a, you know, that the only way this thing could be okay is there's got to be a, there's got to be a rainbow on the other side. There's got to be a pot of gold on the other end. There's got to be a, it's not always that way. 
Sometimes as far as you can see forward is just darkness. I know I'm not the only one in the room been there. People say, oh, I'm a good person. God would never allow that to happen to me. Really? Well, Jesus was perfect, and look what happened to him. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you think that your experience is based on your performance, well, then it's, what's that? I mean, because Mr. Perfect, the, four, the only 4.0 student that ever lived, he got it worse than anybody. So what does that mean for me and you? See how dumb that is? That's just dumb. We're dumb. We, we just want to be dumb. We want to be dumb about suffering. That's what we do. We, we, we're driving down the road. There's a funeral home. We look the other way like, oh, look it over there. We don't even want to look at it. Some of you freak out if you see a casket. It makes you, what is wrong? I mean, what do you think's going to happen? You're just going to float off into the sky one day? A, I mean, hello? You know you need to go down the funeral home and make your arrangements so you don't leave your family in a bed, but you can't do it. I just can't think about it. I can't, like, what are we doing? It's reality. It's real. It's part of life. All right, here's a principle. When it comes to spiritual and personal darkness, ignorance can be more damaging than the problem you're facing. Guarantee you. So this conversation we're going to have is, could, could be the difference maker. It could really be the difference maker. When you find yourself in a dark place, first thing you should say to yourself is, this could go on for a long time. And that doesn't change anything. This may not be over quickly. Okay. There's a way through it. Okay. All right, number two. Darkness can be a great teacher of grace. A great teacher of grace. So you think about all the things that you can only learn through darkness. I mean, when you look at the emotion and not only the emotion in this psalm, but how God-centric everything that is coming through the psalmist's mouth is. Look at like verse 10. Look at what he says. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Verse 12, shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In other words, in this ongoing, seemingly unending darkness, everything coming out of his mouth is totally God-centric. 
See, he's not just saying that there's just random bad things happening and why is this happening to me and why is the world so evil and blah, 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 everything that you hear in our world today. That, he's not saying any of that. He's 100% God focused on everything he said. Now, does he understand it? No. Does he have some solution for it? No. But it's important to understand how God-centric he is. And, and look, he's mad. Darkness makes you mad. Darkness doesn't, when darkness doesn't go away, you get mad. You get frustrated. And then, look, he's accusing God. He's cross-examining God. He's angry with God. He's calling him out. You know, if you would answer me, I would praise you. But all I get back is silence. Verse 14, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I mean, this is a real person feeling real emotions in real darkness. I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. This has been going on a long time. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. That's a strong word. It's like he's saying, you know, where are you? You're not there for me. So here's my question, or questions, number one. Now, why are these words in the Bible? I mean, if you're God, wouldn't you want to leave these out? Maybe, you know, this must have slipped through the editing process. On the final edit, he's like, oh, yeah, I meant to cancel that one out. I mean, why, why is this in the Bible? What, what is, why would God give us this unique window. Why, why does God allow this to be said? See, not only is this in the Bible, but he, think, look at what he's allowing to be said of him and about him and to him. Like, these are some of the most harsh, like, bold, discrediting, you know, disrespectful seeming things you could say to God. And yet he's like, yeah, I think we're going to keep that for all eternity. We're, that's going to be very important. Because of all the things I could, I could uh, give my people, which would have filled up, you know, the entire world, I can only give them this tiny little sliver. But this is so important, I'm going to make it part of that tiny sliver. See, that's the kind of thing that interests me. I go, hmm. I think it's important. I think we should investigate. I think we should ask that question and go, hmm, maybe, but you know what? There's something here. And I think it's to show us that he understands us in our weakness and frustration and that he still loves us. Because here's the deal. You got to think now. You got to think a little, a little, you know, abstractly with me for a second. Everything in the Bible is true. Right? Okay. So that means this is true. Right? So, so this is true. See, God's not, God didn't put this in here and then at the end go, now that, see that, that's not true. And I just use it to trick you. Right? It's true. So God allowed this and the fact that he did tells us that it's true. And so now you're kind of going, well, now hold on a second. So what does that mean? Well, 
Haman is the one who, the, the author of this psalm is a, is a man named Haman. So, even though Haman says all these things that he says, what's clear is that God is still his God. Now, he's mad, and he says some crazy, frustrating, bitter, mean, resentful, but, but here's the thing. It's true. It's true. What, that's how he feels in this moment. That's, how he's, that's what he's experiencing. That's what he's truly saying. And I think somebody who, you know, is, you know, feels like this is, you know, shouldn't be here or whatever the case may be. That's just because they've never been in real darkness because I feel like I can relate to it. And I think it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity for us to, to understand God. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a lot of people that think this psalm is here to, uh, I mean, to depress us or something. I mean, there's so many bonehead ideas out there. There's books, commentaries, and people who claim to be scholars who try to say that Psalm 88 is just, when Psalm 89 starts, it's really the end of Psalm 88 so that they can make sense of this whole thing. Wishful thinking, that ain't the case. That's not what's happening. Here's what's happening. God's saying, I'm your God. I'm your God. When you're hurting and broken into pieces, when you don't act like you should, when you say things that offend me, when you blame me and accuse me, I'm still your God. I am still your God. It doesn't change. That's who I am. Even in the midst of this terrible darkness. And here's what you got to understand. It's not because you act right, but because of my grace. Because you know what? You don't, none of us act right in, in deep, dark places. We don't act right. But you know why? Because we can't act right. Because it, that's what darkness does to us. It, it's, it's excruciatingly difficult. See, the grace of God is never more vivid as it is in our darkness. It's like when everything else, the darker the world around us gets and our circumstances get and our life gets and the deeper we go into this unrelenting darkness, the more vivid the grace of God becomes if we know how to look and where to look. So darkness can last, number one. Darkness can be a, grace, a great teacher of grace, number two. And number three, darkness often produces greatness. It produces greatness. It produces greatness. Job chapter 1. Remember, remember talking about, uh, you know, Satan's three-point sermon, and you know, I've been teaching about that the last couple of weeks. All right, remember that, Job chapter 1, the whole thing about Job. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And so what's going on there? 
I mean, the accusation of Satan is that we all serve God from a heart of selfishness. Because what's happened? What is Satan's objective is to get us dissatisfied, to get us discontent, to get us to feel like we're missing out on something, right? To get us to, and so, so of course, the whole conversation, Satan's going to play the same card and he's going, well, the only reason why he's faithful to him is because you bless him. That's the whole point of the whole book of Job is to teach in a long drawn out way in a very, you know, except for again, at the end of the book of Job, even though he went through all these terrible things, he gets everything restored, you know, twofold and so on and so forth. And so we're all happy. See, we leave the movie theater going, that was so good, that Job movie. I just loved that. It was amazing. Didn't you love that? But don't read Psalm 88 because it's nothing amazing at the end. It's still dark. It's still dark. There's no, there's no answer. Um, so the accusation is that we all serve from a heart of selfishness. So we serve God because why? Because he does good things for us. So Haman directs all of his thoughts to God. He points everything to God, yet he receives nothing in return. See, why, everything that Haman says in this psalm is, you're this, you're that, you know, capital Y-O-U. He's talking to God. It's all about God. Everything's God-centric. But he's not getting any help, but yet he's still focused on God. So the darkness has taught him that even in his hopelessness, God is who you cry out to. See, he's the only hope. See, the point is not that God's going to fix it. You don't cry out to God because he's going to fix it. You cry out to God because it's just like Jesus said to Peter, well, to whom shall you go? I mean, do you want to leave? I know you're all thinking about leaving. That's what he says to the disciples. And then Peter goes, well, where would we go? To whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. See, the thing is, we cry out to God because, well, if you don't cry out to God, who are you going to cry out to? He's the only... See, the, the thing is, you mentally have to understand in your head, if you only cry out to God because he can and will fix it, you are going to be in trouble because you don't know that he's going to do that. But if you cry out to God because... God's the only one worthy to cry out to. Now, that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. So here's a principle. The principle is what we know is true doesn't always feel true. See, you, you, what matters is what you know to be true, not what feels true. There's a lot of times what I know is true doesn't feel true, but I still have to act on it because I know it's true. Got that? I know it's true. So you, you know, you, we do this in, in all sorts of small ways all the time. 
We know something's true. It doesn't feel true, but we, that's why, you see, that's the whole, that's the whole trick of a thrill ride. You get on a roller coaster, you know something's true, but it's going to make you feel like it's not true. And the more not true it feels, the more exciting that it is, right? That's all it's doing is tricking you. That's the whole point. Well, you got to make sure that you're not basing your life on what feels true. Now, Haman does this, does so many amazing things, but one of them is he never stops praying. Never. He never stops praying. See, how long will you be committed to prayer? Oftentimes, the answer to that question is based on how quickly God will respond to what I pray. But again, I'm back to the point I made previously. Did you ever stop to consider, like, so you've been praying and 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 and God hasn't done anything. And so what you do is convince yourself, well, maybe that's not what God wants, so I'm going to stop praying about it. Okay, but but hold on. So, So your solution... How is the solution ever to quit praying? Think about how completely absurd that is. Why would you ever quit praying? Because listen, most of the prayers you've ever prayed in your life were wrong. So just because you prayed something for months or years or decades and God hasn't answered it, you convince yourself that it's wrong. Well, why do you think Jesus is at the right hand of the throne interceding on your behalf? Because you don't never know what to pray. So that has nothing to do with it. So I'm going to quit praying in lieu of what? What am I going to quit praying? In lieu of, I'm going to quit praying and I'm going to read a book by a really smart person. I'm going to quit praying. I'm going to ask someone else with that. I mean, what are you going to replace praying with? What possibly in the universe could even have one bazillionth of the capacity and the power than you praying. Like it, the point is not whether or not God's answering your prayer. The more important point is if you're not praying, well, then what are you doing? Clearly what you're doing is a bazillion times worse than praying, right? But we convince ourselves to quit praying because God hasn't done what we want to do. But yet again, we also know that had God answered all the previous thousand times we prayed the way we want him to, our life would have been a disaster. And now looking back, we see, well, thank goodness he didn't do what I was asking him to do. He did what was better, right? You see how ridiculous we are? Like you never quit praying, ever. Even if you don't know what to pray or how to pray. You know you can pray when you don't know what to pray. I do it all the time. Just pray. Just get in the presence of God and just say whatever you can say or don't say anything. Yes. Man, we could convince ourselves of some really dumb things, can't we? We got to be careful. So he never quits praying. Look, in Matthew chapter 5, At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you 
When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I mean, this sounds like the craziest thing in the world. For great is your reward in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So my point is that out of darkness comes greatness. Here's Jesus in the Beatitudes saying, here's all this darkness that could come upon you. But if it does, don't worry, greatness will come out of that. You know, there's two places in the New Testament where Jesus told somebody they had great faith. You know that? Two times. You know what they are? Two people, Jesus said, you have great faith. Only two. Only two. In Matthew chapter 8, here's what the Bible says. Now, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. This guy is like panicking, begging, comes to Jesus and is like, please. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, no problem, I'll heal him. And they have a dialogue back and forth. And then Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Huh? Now, wait a minute. What about, what about these disciples? What about, what about John the Baptist? What about, what about all these, I mean, what, what about all these candidates here? But, but this random guy, and what was the other one? Then in Matthew 15, behold, a woman of Canaan came to the region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Then Jesus answered her and said, he heals her. And then he says, O woman, great is your faith. Now, what do these two things have in common? What, were, what is the commonality of the, what is the situation of both of these people when they encountered Jesus? Darkness. You get that? Darkness. Was the rich young ruler in darkness when he encountered Jesus? Negative. He wasn't even close to darkness. See, greatness comes out of darkness. See that? So this psalm is written by Haman. Who's Haman? We never heard of Haman. Well, it says like up at the top of the Bible there, I'm sure you can see that, that he's of the Korahites. Now, that's a group of worship leaders. And they wrote 11 of the Psalms. They, they're called Psalms of Lament. They wrote, they wrote 42 to 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. Some of the greatest Psalms in the Bible. Let me tell you a couple things about Haman because we know a few things. He turns up in the Bible a few places. First Chronicles chapter 6. Now these were the men whom David appointed over the service of the song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons of the sons of the Korahites were Haman, the singer, the son of Joel. So he's listed right off the bat as this guy was a very gifted musician, singer, songwriter, worship leader. So, and he also had a very close relationship with David. So now you see where he, he, he learned a lot of things from David. David probably learned a lot of things from him. 
In 1 Chronicles 25, the Bible says, For God gave Haman 14 sons and three daughters. Maybe that's why he knew a lot about darkness. I mean, he had 17 kids. Lord help him. Because remember, he said, I've been battling this since my youth. Well, you know, they get young, they get married young in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 4, the Bible says that Haman was a man noted for his wisdom, to whom Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, was compared. Now, that's interesting because I think that most of us would see Haman as a loser because there's no resolution to this darkness. Like, something had to be wrong with him. He had, there had to be some flaw. But through all this darkness that he faced and all this deep depression that he got, him, got into, through all the darkness, God has used him to be an encouragement to untold millions of people. Now, did he know that in his lifetime? Nope. He had no clue. He had no clue. How many, how many millions upon millions of people have been impacted by his life and his giftedness and his darkness? And he never had any, never dreamed in a million years, 3,000 years later, we'd be having a conversation about the words that he penned out. He didn't know that. He just loved God, ended up in a real dark, deep place that lasted a real long time, and he wrote a song about it. And look at what happened. So, you know, before you think, oh, see, there's the happy ending. No, he didn't know that. He didn't have a clue. See, in God's economy, darkness and greatness grow in the same field. They grow right next to each other. They, they, they're in the same garden. Darkness and greatness, hand in hand, they work together. You know what? You know what most contemporary Christians would say in their heart, not out loud? I don't want to be great. So they would say, we would rather avoid darkness at all costs, even if it costs us the opportunity to be great. What a pity. What a shame. Because again, all you're doing is putting temporal, fleeting things before eternal, everlasting things. What a horrific mistake to make. Number four, and finally, darkness is never permanent. It's never permanent. Never permanent. Put out in parentheses next to number four, for the child of God. Because there are plenty of people who are in permanent darkness. 
but not the child of God. See, at the end of Psalm 88, he ends with, and so my, my acquaintance is, is in darkness. My, my, I'm acquainted with darkness. My friend, I've been in darkness so long that it's just become darkness. That's what it is. My relationship is with darkness. Well, notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27. Now, on the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Now, why was there darkness? Why, why does the Bible, did, did it, did, did, is there some particular reason that it had to be darkness? I mean, why darkness? Why didn't it start raining? Why wouldn't there rain? Why not hail? Hail would be good. We should, why not hail? Why not locusts? Why darkness? You ever asked that question? You ever wondered that? Why darkness? By the way, the other unresolved psalm, Psalm 39, you know what the very last verse of that psalm says? It says, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. So there's darkness over all the earth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life. Hmm. So there's darkness. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And then the symbolic tearing of the temple uh, curtain, which we understand the veil has been torn, so we have access. And then the shaking and splitting of rocks. And then there's, re there's resurrection. Now in the middle of Psalm 88, right in the middle in verse 10, notice what he says. In all of his agony, he says, will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Now, what he means is, he doesn't mean, he has no concept that this is going to happen. What he means is, you know, why don't you fix me so that I can praise you? Because if I'm dead, I can't praise you. That's what he means. Like, what, what good is it if I'm dead? But see, the thing about it is because, because what Heman believes is that he's in total darkness. That's what he believes. Well, he thought that he was in total darkness, but he wasn't. Jesus was in total darkness. We can't go in total darkness. That's the only time anybody's ever went to total darkness. And once he went to total darkness, guess what? Nobody else can go. Because he defeated it. And so for everyone that's in him, well, total darkness is not an option for us anymore. So again, we might feel like we're in total darkness, but we can't go by what we feel, can we? We've got to be careful. We can't go by what we feel. We've got to go by what we know is true. So, so here's what I want you to understand. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane 
with the people on earth that he's closest to relationally. Then he separates out the three that he's, he's absolutely the closest to as he's moving closer into agony as the darkness is getting darker and darker and darker. And he gets those three close to him and he says, pray for me. And then he's betrayed, let down, not once but twice by the people that are closest to him. So, so now he's as alone in an earthly sense as he's ever felt by, by a million miles. He's got the weight of the world upon him such that he's sweating drops of blood. Then he ends up in, a, in he just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets darker and it gets darker and it gets darker until all the way gets so dark that he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He's utterly in utter darkness. He's absolutely at the pinnacle of darkness. And he could have bailed at any moment, but he didn't. He could have just said, the heck with this. Like I could take it so far, but I'm not taking it. I'm done. He could have, he could have just waved his pinky finger and just got down off the cross and wiped everything out. And he didn't have to stay up there. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And what does that tell us? What, what undeniable reality does that communicate? If he didn't abandon you, if he didn't abandon you in his total darkness, then why would you ever think he would abandon you in your darkness? Because your darkness doesn't even hold a candle to his, right? So why would he abandon you in your darkness? He didn't abandon me and you in his darkness so that we would know in our darkness that he won't abandon us. That's what he did. That's why he did that. So that when it doesn't get better, when it keeps going, when you don't think you can take any more, and it just keeps going and going and going and going. I spent years in darkness. And none of you knew. And I stood up here and I preached to you just like I am right now. And you never had a clue. And I counseled you and I loved you. I listened to you and I hugged you and I cried with you. And the whole time I was dying inside. Now, I don't tell you that so that you feel sorry for me because that would do neither of us any good. I tell you that so that you understand something. I wasn't pretending. I was relying upon Psalm 88. That's how I got through that. And had it not come to an end, you still wouldn't know. But if I didn't know what I just taught you, I wouldn't be standing there right now. You see, what I'm trying to get you to understand is, is that 
Ignorance about darkness can be far worse than the darkness. If you understand darkness and you understand God in the darkness, and I had resolved myself that it just may never change. It may never change. See, Jesus was truly abandoned so that you and me will never be. There were so many times in that season that I felt like God was so far from me. And I said so many things to God that right now I can't even believe that I said. You know, because I felt them. They were, but here's the thing. I knew the difference between what I knew was true and what I felt was true. And that's what I want you to know. And if you ever get to where you feel like it's so dark and so deep that you can't, you, you feel like you're running out of the ability to pray. Like had I ever gotten to the point where I felt like I was about to succumb to the darkness, what would I have done? I would have told you. I would have told you and I would have said, I need you to pray for me. But I never got there because I never quit praying. But if you don't, you ever quit praying. And if you feel like you're going to quit praying, you better call somebody and get them to pray for you and to pray with you. That's how you don't succumb to the darkness. I knew. I knew. I knew the Bible teaches me in a thousand ways. God will never abandon me. So if I'm here, he's here with me. 